quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And a warm welcome to First Move this Monday and much to discuss after this weekend's events in Russia. The world's attention gripped by extraordinary scenes as Wagner Group mercenaries staged their short-lived rebellion against the Kremlin, claiming control of Russian military facilities in two cities and making an abortive march on Moscow. Russian President Putin making his first appearance since the mutiny in a recorded video address and not acknowledging the weekend's turmoil. We have no certainty about precisely when that video was made. EU foreign ministers meeting in Luxembourg today saying the insurrection has undermined Putin's grip on power and weakened Russian military readiness overall. The foreign minister of Latvia and the country's president-elect is attending those meetings and we will hear from him later on this hour. Latvia, of course, borders Belarus, where Wagner Group head Evgeny Progozin has reportedly agreed to live in exile. We'll also hear from retired U.S. Lieutenant General and CNN military analyst Mark Hurtling, who says the Wagner revolt reflects, quote, the incredible dysfunction and corruption of all those involved in this weekend's extraordinary showdown. In the meantime, Ukraine's foreign minister today urging EU nations to accelerate Russia's defeat, quote, by stepping up support for his nation. Ukraine today claiming fresh gains in the southeast and advances in areas around Bakhmut, the town that Wagner claims to have retaken last month. But then, of course, it left. In the meantime, on global markets, caution, as you would expect, as investors monitor the latest events. U.S. futures, little changed at this stage, taking back some earlier weakness in Europe. Relatively mixed, too, after a weaker Asia handover. We're seeing more pronounced reactions, though, across the commodities complex. Natural gas prices rallying in Europe. Gold, silver, as well as wheat, as perhaps you would expect, also remaining higher. A busy hour of mutiny scrutiny ahead. So let me give you a look at that video of President Putin released by the Kremlin. He appears to be giving a short speech to a youth industrial forum, as I mentioned, without mentioning the aborted mutiny this weekend. Again, it's not clear when or where it was filmed. And the Russian military also released this video showing the defense minister, Sergei Shogu, visiting troops. It's also not known when this took place either. In the meantime, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking about the Wagner rebellion while visiting Lithuania. It also demonstrates how, uh, how uh, difficult and dangerous it is for uh, President Putin to be reliant on mercenaries that has actually turned against him. And uh, it also demonstrates that uh, uh, 
it is hard to predict exactly what will now happen in the next days and weeks, but uh, we should not make the mistakes that we are underestimating uh, the Russians. So uh, we need to continue to provide support to Ukraine, and that's exactly what NATO and NATO allies are doing. Meanwhile, in Moscow, all security restrictions imposed as the Wagner rebellion unfolded have now been lifted, as Matthew Chance reports. It's been a weekend of chaos in Russia. An armed insurrection threatening the Russian state, ending as suddenly as it began. It kicked off on Friday with allegations of a deadly strike on a Wagner military camp in Ukraine, the leader of the Russian mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, accusing his rivals in the defence ministry of ordering the attack. Russian officials denied any role. But a furious Prigozhin, who's repeatedly accused the military of mishandling the war in Ukraine, vowed revenge. Those who destroyed our guys today, along with tens of thousands of lives of Russian soldiers, will be punished. I ask no one to put up any resistance. Justice for the troops will be restored, and then justice for all of Russia. The threat of violence was a shocking, unprecedented challenge, putting Wagner on a collision course with the Kremlin. A criminal case was launched, accusing Prigozhin of insurrection. But that didn't stop him. By Saturday morning, Wagner forces had moved into the Russian city of Rostov-on-Don in the country's south, taking over a key military facility there with little resistance. More Wagner forces continued north towards Moscow, shooting down Russian military aircraft that challenged them and ratcheting up the stakes as the Russian president addressed the nation. This is a blow to Russia, to our people, all those who deliberately chose the path of treachery, who prepared an armed mutiny, who chose the path of blackmail and terrorist methods will face inevitable punishment and will answer both to the law and to our people. The slow progress of the Wagner column, roads were dug up along the route, military checkpoints set up outside the city as Moscovites braced for bloodshed. But it was a confrontation that never came. Behind the scenes, a deal was brokered involving the leader of neighbouring Belarus. Prigozhin would halt the Wagner advance and supposedly leave for exile in Belarus. An audio message confirmed his forces would stand down. Therefore, realising all the responsibility for the fact that Russian blood will be shed from one of the sides, we turn our columns around and leave in the opposite direction to the field camps, according to the plan. The Kremlin later confirmed grievous criminal charges would be dropped as part of the deal. But as Wagner forces dispersed on Saturday, crowds in Rostov cheered them, a worrying sign for the Kremlin that Prigozhin's short-lived rebellion had struck a popular chord. The big question now in Russia is what will this unprecedented challenge to Putin's rule unleash? And Nick Peyton Walsh joins us now from Kiev. Nick, as you wrote this weekend incredibly eloquently, there's really more questions than answers at this stage and not much of what we're seeing actually makes sense. But if we tie the threads together of some of the videos, the recorded messages that we've seen both of President Putin himself and also the defence minister, despite the accusations that the Wagner chief levelled in his direction, if you believe this video, he still remains in his position and in charge. What do you make of what we've seen from the Russian side so far over the last 12 hours? 
Yeah, I mean, the Shoigu video is interesting because it shows him visiting troops, it seems, on the Ukrainian front lines. Video that appears to have been recorded on the Friday in which Evgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner chief, began his insurrection, made his speech saying the rationale for the war uh, was basically a lie uh, and then claimed his camp was hit by what he said was a Russian military airstrike. That's something that the Russian military have indeed denied. So that in itself is baffling that Shoigu could be touring the front lines in the area while this is beginning to emerge. So we'll have to see quite where he is now, what his position genuinely uh, has turned into over the last weekend of turmoil. But possibly more significantly is the presence or the lack of it of Vladimir Putin. This is, without doubt, the most serious challenge to his rule since he came into power in late 1999. And here we are with a pre-recorded message in which he talks about a youth forum in Tula, instantly, interestingly, where the Wagner column got near during Saturday, and no mention of the armed insurrection at all. And it's possibly a bid by the Kremlin to suggest that everything is as normal, business uh, back to where it was earlier last week. But that's obviously nonsense in the minds of virtually every Russian with a television set. Even Russian state TV has been openly analysing what on earth all of this means. And so there is essentially a question now as to exactly where Putin is, why he is not evidently making himself publicly available to show he is still in charge. He is still pulling the levers of power. Look, they could fix this in a matter of minutes, frankly, by just showing him chairing a meeting of his top advisers in the Kremlin. But that hasn't happened. That may be through choice to show he's not perturbed by these events, or it may be for other reasons that we couldn't really get into speculating on. But it shows, again, a vacuum at the top of the Russian government. They're aware enough to put the Prime Minister on television today, but we don't know really where Vladimir Putin is, or indeed where Yevgeny Prigozhin is. And it's important to stress that while we've had a sort of nice bow tied in these events by Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson, saying that Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, knew Prigozhin for a while, gave him a phone call after consulting with Vladimir Putin and came up with this deal where essentially Prigozhin would flee to Belarus, where he's not publicly emerged either, and that his fighters would get some sense of immunity or join the Ministry of Defence. Prigozhin never mentioned that in his audio message and just said he turned around on the way to Moscow to avoid bloodshed. So, so many questions here to be answered. Are the charges still against Prigozhin valid? What has become of Wagner fighters? Are they still recruiting? Are they still in the positions where they were on the front line or behind the front line or inside Russia's base camps as they were earlier last week? Or are they giving up their weapons and going home or joining the Ministry of Defence? These are urgent questions frankly, for the integrity of the Russian state and the ones that we're not getting answers to. Instead, we are seeing the Russian foreign minister making, again, completely uh, evidence-free accusations that perhaps the Russian government is looking into the involvement of Western intelligence services in this, what they call, armed insurrection. Russian often does that, blames internal crises on outsiders. Uh, and, as I say, there's no evidence that he even knows what's in that investigation. But it's a Russian state at this point floundering, it seems, to project unity, to protect control. And you've got to remember, they're still fighting a war, which they've characterised as an existential fight against Ukraine and its NATO backers. And right now, it isn't clear entirely who is running the show. It's on paper Vladimir Putin, but in any coup, you would normally expect the man who claimed to have survived an attempt to remove him from power to publicly put himself on display as in charge. We've not seen that yet today, or indeed yesterday. 
No, and we'll keep watching for it. Um, very quickly, Nick, to your point, what about the reaction in Ukraine? One can only imagine how a manic President Zelensky's weekend was, trying to strategize and work out perhaps how they can capitalize on what's clearly disarray in, in Moscow at this moment. I mean, in short, the Russian, sorry, the Ukrainian reaction has been this is the chickens coming home to roost. This is essentially uh, the first steps of the dismantling of the Russian regime. That's according to the uh, senior national security official, Alexei Danilov, here speaking yesterday. Now, uh, of course, there'll be champagne corks popping. I've seen gleeful Ukrainians myself. But it's important to remember that stability in a nuclear power like Russia is often useful. And whoever comes to replace Putin, indeed, if Prigozhin had been successful, that wouldn't suddenly have meant a passive Russia looking for for a peace deal on Ukrainian terms. So a lot that could still go wrong here, but ultimately the instability here, the distraction of the Russian military having to deal with an insurrection by its own will probably work in Ukraine's favor. The question, of course, is do they seize upon that immediately as the turmoil continues? Do they let the turmoil play out in case it worsens and makes matters uh, yet more complex for Putin? There is a risk too, of course, that too seismic a change on the front line could indeed rally the Russian elite around Putin if they see it. The potential for an existential loss in Ukraine. And of course, to, for Ukraine to adjust its positions on the battlefield, that can take time. That can take days to move thousands of troops to exploit what they perceive to be a weakness. So I'm sure Ukraine and its Western allies still assessing what this means, who in Russia's forces has been moved, where, here, why, and indeed have the front lines changed much. I suspect we'll see some kind of motion in the weeks ahead. But really, still, the ultimate question is who is running Russia's military campaign. We haven't seen Shoigu live today. We haven't seen Putin live today. We've not even seen Prigozhin live today. And that, you'd think, must have some Russians wondering what is going on, particularly those in the trenches, putting their lives on the line for Putin's war of choice. Mm. Julia? My perfect question for my next guest. Nick, great to have you. Nick Payton Walsh there. And for more on this, we're joined by CNN's military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, the former commander of the U.S. Army in Europe. General, welcome. Great to get your expertise on the show. Um, I'm going to pose that question that Nick was just asking. What do you make of the absence of President Putin coming out and saying, look, we suppressed this supposed rebellion, mutiny, whatever you want to call it? And who do you perceive to be in charge of the forces now that remain fighting in, in Ukraine? What I make of Putin's absence today, as well as uh, the other ones that Nick pointed out, Shogu, Gerasimov, we need to add him to the list as well, Prigozhin, some of the other commanders that were so vocal on the net on Friday asking Prigozhin not to conduct this operation, some of the Russian military commanders, tells me that it is certainly not a case of business as usual. Uh, the Russian forces, the Russian military, and the Russian government have all experienced a great deal of trauma over the last 48 hours. And here's what's interesting, uh, Julia, the fact that conditions on the battlefield require trust, uh, trust between soldiers, trust between soldiers and their leaders, trust between leaders and their government. We have seen throughout this campaign by Russia that they are missing much of that trust in both the tactical and the operational standpoint. Now we're seeing a massive disruption and dysfunction generating trust between the government and the forces on the ground. So there are, there are a lot of analysts today saying this won't have a whole lot of effect on the battlefield. I completely disagree with that. I think it will certainly affect the capabilities of the Russian forces to continue to act inside of Ukraine. 
I think what we need to understand, and I saw you talking about this over the weekend, was the scale of Wagner forces potentially that we're talking about. And I know it's difficult to get a precise estimate, but somewhere between perhaps 25 and 40,000 troops we're talking about. I think you estimated somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of those Russian forces that were and are fighting in Ukraine. You can't just integrate number of people, even if they were willing into the into the Russian forces, you also, I'm sure, can't expect them suddenly to just switch allegiance, not knowing where um, their boss, the Wagner chief Prigozhin, is at this moment or what it means for them or him. How does how does this work? <laughs> That's the key question, in my view, Julia, and you've asked it very succinctly. How do you integrate a group of people who were different uh, that were fighting as part of a clan or a tribe for a charismatic leader who thought he had connections that no other military commanders had. How do you now take that organization and either insert them in different locations on the battlefield under a new commander or integrate them into other forces that have been uh, depleted through combat? You don't. Uh, it's very difficult to take someone who thinks they are special and put them in with just the normal troops in an infantry battalion. There are, there are, uh, there's hatred on both sides or there's a lack of trust on both sides. And you add to that the fact that Prigozhin's troops were firing on Russian units, not just the aircraft. And they shot down allegedly somewhere between six and eight Russian aircraft and killed pilots in the process, but they also fired on Russian ground troops. And in addition to that, they surrounded the southern, uh, the Russian southern headquarters in Rostov-on-Don. These are not things that generate camaraderie and cohesion within a military. And that's exactly what you need in a defensive alignment, which is what Russia is trying to execute now against increasing uh, momentum by the Ukrainian forces. They were also relatively unchallenged in the progress that they were making towards Moscow. In certain cases, they were being cheered. Sort of questions that come into my mind, where was the FSB? Where were the um, forces still loyal to the Kremlin, perhaps trying to dissuade them? And, and what can it mean for morale that they were being welcomed along their way in light of the accusations that they'd thrown at the, at the defence ministry as well and the suggestion that this was um, some kind of false war? To your point about the implications that this has on the battlefield, just in terms of morale, surely it's potent. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and you bring up a point that I was trying to digest all weekend long. Why are they not being stopped? They, there, was, there was not even a hiccup or a speed bump along the road to Rostov and then along the road to Beleznev on the road to Moscow. There were no active units attempting to stop them. They were not stopped by the Russian border police, just like some of the other uh, Russian insurgents that attacked in Belgorod and Kursk and Smolensk uh, earlier in the month. So it, it tells me, first of all, that Russia is very weak along their border. Secondly, commanders along the way don't know how Russian commanders don't know what to do unless they are given precise orders to stop either an insurrection, a mutiny, or a potential coup, whatever we want to call this thing. So it, it just it boggles the imagination to have military commanders working for the government not doing anything against, again, a mutineer who the president got on TV and said this guy is a criminal. 
and he should be stopped. And other commanders were saying, don't do this. And oh, by the way, at the same time, Prigozhin is killing fellow Russians. It just doesn't make sense, as Nick so eloquently said. There are so many questions to this. We can't. We in the West can't wrap our hands around it because it is such a description of a dysfunctional military, but also a dysfunctional government that seems to be breaking down into clans as opposed to a unified security force. Yeah, there's much we don't understand, but there's certainly um, valuable information being gleaned in um, much of what took place, I think. Um, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling there. General, thank you so much for your wisdom. Okay, straight ahead. Russian riddles and global risks. Our coverage of the fallout from the Wagner Rebellion continues after this. We'll also be hearing from the Foreign Minister and President-elect of Latvia, who's in Luxembourg for high-level talks. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs... That would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. EU foreign ministers are meeting in Luxembourg today, their first chance to respond as a group to the weekend's events in Russia. Countries today agreeing to an additional $3.8 billion in terms of aid and support to Ukraine, while the nations also assess their military deployments. Germany saying it will dispatch 4,000 soldiers to Lithuania to strengthen the eastern flank of NATO. And joining us now, Edgar Swinkiewicz. He's Latvia's foreign minister and president-elect and is attending today's talks in Luxembourg. Foreign minister, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you are busy can I ask what was discussed and what your conclusions were on the events that took place in Russia this weekend? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And indeed, it has been quite a weekend for everyone. And today, as uh, European Union Foreign Council met, we discussed the situation as it unfolds. I think that uh, we cannot jump into conclusions. One apparent thing is that uh, Mr. Putin appears to be very much weakened, but also we are of unanimous opinion that we need to double down on our support for Ukraine. 
we need to actually keep pushing uh, Russia and providing decisions that are related to more sanctions on Russia. And also we were discussing actually whereabouts of uh, the founder of Poponi, Mr. Prigozhin, who actually by some reports uh, could be in Belarus. And you know, for my country, Latvia, that is neighboring both Russia and Belarus, this is not very welcome news. So we also believe that we need to assess the situation and maybe also to push for additional sanctions uh, against Belarus. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I want to pick up on the point that you said that, that Russian President Vladimir Putin does appear to be weakened. How much weakened? Have you got any assessment? Please. Yeah, I think this is um, something that we will see in coming days and weeks. Actually, there is a lot of contradictory information coming out of Moscow, like there are not going to be any criminal charges vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, fighters of Wagner Group uh, and Mr. Prigozhin, and then no charges have not been dropped. I think that uh, also there is a big question about uh, what is going to happen with the current Minister of Defense and Chief of General Staff. So I think it's a bit too early to call any conclusion at this point, but we uh, decided to continue to assess the situation and to see how much damage this situation has done to the Russian leadership at this point. I know it's difficult to say at this moment, as you said, amid so much uncertainty, but it is also your job to prepare. Was there discussion, are preparations being made for the collapse of the Russian government? Well, uh, I wouldn't say that today we were discussing any definite plans, but I think that what has happened over the weekend, actually uh, is something that we need now to look into the kind of scenarios that probably one could not imagine a couple of days ago. One certain scenario that could be a sudden collapse of uh, the current regime, some kind of uh, civil war, or actually, and we also cannot exclude that uh, at some point Mr. Putin tries to uh, let's say, strengthen his power and to try to uh, put uh, more restrictive uh, measures in place, more repressions could follow. So I do believe that at this point, both the European Union and also NATO should prepare for all kinds of eventualities, also the one that you just mentioned. Yeah. Can you expand on the prospect and the concern that was shared perhaps at this meeting on whether in order to consolidate power, to look like he remains in a position of strength, that actually this means a deterioration on the battlefield in Ukraine, that actually results in worse violence? It is very difficult for us now to understand what is happening in Moscow and what is happening, uh, let's say, uh, in those discussions among top Russian leadership. Apparently, uh, the battlefield was not so much impacted during that mutiny that we just saw. There were still missile strikes against Ukrainian cities, so some things appear to be like war as it is since uh, February last year. On the other hand, it's absolutely clear that Ukraine needs more support, more ammunition, everything in order to be prepared also to the kind of 
uh, some uh, attack by Russians, uh, the attack ordered by President Putin, simply trying to get the uh, impression that he is fully in control and get an impression that, uh, let's say, he's still a very powerful leader who is able to command his troops, and this was just a small episode. So I think that we should be prepared also to this, and we need to continue arming Ukraine with everything we can. You mentioned the prospect of further sanctions on Russia. What may they look like, Foreign Minister? And can we compare the economic pressure that those sanctions have imposed on the Russian economy to the challenges that we saw this weekend? Is, is this actually a far bigger threat, what we saw this weekend, than any amount of economic pressure, actually, that the EU nations in particular have imposed on Russia? If uh, all of a sudden Russia implodes, that is just one possibility, but I would not speculate uh, there, because what we have seen that uh, this, um, uh, this situation was resolved uh, quite quickly at this point. But if there is this kind of scenario, of course the neighboring countries, the whole Europe needs to be prepared to the possibility of uh, private armies uh, controlling parts of Russia. There is a big question about nuclear weapons. Mm. There are so many issues that we need to reassess our readiness and actually to put more uh, into planning process and preparation than probably uh, ever before. Second about those sanctions. We just adopted as the EU the so-called 11th package. You know, the stance of Latvia has always been that we need to continue applying pressure, but we also want to see that we are closing loopholes, that we are also addressing the uh, circumvention of, of sanctions by third countries. So still there are many things how to make what we have done already more efficient. So preparing for all kinds of eventualities, both at NATO and EU level, that's number one. Number two, it's more pressure on Russia. And let me also remind about Belarus. And third, definitely continuing uh, the support to, to Ukraine, because to some extent, uh, if Ukraine is successful, that also is going to change dynamic in Russia and hopefully to, to the more positive way. What we heard from the NATO Secretary General, um, finally, Foreign Minister, this morning was that what we saw this weekend demonstrates the fragility of the Russian regime. But he also said it's not for NATO to interfere in this. How concerned are you that President Putin now uses that and suggests that this mutiny was in some way led, financed, encouraged by the West, by NATO members? And what would be your response to that? Well, that's complete nonsense. Uh, mm. It was not led by NATO or any Western nation. Look, uh, Mr. Prigozhin is not, uh, let's say, the force of the good fighting the force of the evil. On the contrary, two evils were fighting each other. And uh, we have from the very beginning said that this is internal matter of the Russian Federation. Mm. And that's the way how it actually developed. I think that... Uh, no NATO planner in his widest dreams could kind of be able to produce such kind of, of plan and to materialize. And the fact that nobody, and I believe even in Moscow, there are not many people who really understand what is happening, proves the point. This has been unexpected to some extent. To some extent, of course, uh, listening to what 
Mr. Prigozhin has been saying for some time about Russian defense leadership and so on. So I would say that, uh, yes, indeed, Russian propaganda would try to use this against NATO, but NATO, the West, or, or the European Union has nothing to do with that, and I do believe that we were correct at the very beginning, saying this is internal matter of Russia. It has been resolved for a time being, but what we really need to be prepared as defensive alliance, that there could be all kinds of scenarios, including some of which we have just discussed. Mm. Sir, great to have you on the show. I'll let you go. I know you have a Thank busy day much. still ahead. Thank you, sir. Edgar Zrinkevich there, Latvia's foreign minister and president-elect. Thank you once again, sir. Welcome back to First Move. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov saying Moscow is investigating whether, quote, Western intelligence services were involved in the Wagner events over the weekend. It comes after the Kremlin released a video showing President Putin giving a speech to a youth industrial forum in which he made no mention of this weekend's mutiny. It's not clear, of course, when or where it was filmed. In Moscow, all security restrictions imposed as the rebellion unfolded have also now been lifted. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying the Wagner events show cracks in Putin's rule. This is just an added uh, chapter to a very, very bad book that uh, Putin has written for Russia. Uh, but what's so uh, striking about it is it's internal. The fact that you have from within uh, someone directly questioning Putin's authority directly questioning the premises that, uh, upon which he launched this aggression uh, against Ukraine. That in and of itself is um, something very, uh, very powerful. It adds cracks um, where those go, when they get there, too soon to say. Uh, but it clearly raises new questions that Putin has to deal with. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, it is an added chapter in the Russian saga, but one can't help but believe that the chapter's not yet over for two reasons. One, because we've not heard from President Putin yet, nor have we heard from the Wagner boss either. Who's the more important individual at this moment to hear from? Putin. Uh, mm. And in a way, we have heard from Putin. The fact we, he, he is not sort of upfront leading, um, leading everything that's to be said about the situation right now is indicative of, of his style of leadership. Look, he's, he's pushed uh, out to Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, the, 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 the tough job, I will, of sort of handling uh, the negotiations with Prigozhin, but more importantly, is sort of just pushed off having to deal with any outfall of whatever Prigozhin does next, because it becomes Lukashenko's responsibility, because he's going to be in, in, in Belarus. Um, I think also, you know, Putin... Uh, today, or rather the Kremlin, has put out the Prime Minister to speak about the situation, the importance of unity, importance of moving forward. So there is messaging, really, from the Kremlin. Uh, you know, the fact we've seen Putin on TV, the fact that we've seen the Defence Minister on TV, we don't know when they were shot. Um, it didn't tell us anything about what they're thinking today. They're showing they're still around. Um, they're pushing off the responsibility of holding the narrative, the negative and the positive, and mostly it's been negative over the weekend. They're pushed off the responsibility of that onto others. So yeah, Putin, I mean, Putin's very much there behind the scenes, pulling the strings. And his message is very clearly this, nothing to see here, moving on, we're dealing with it, something happened, we're in control, let's focus forward, the war in Ukraine. And that message, of course, you mentioned coming from the foreign minister, well, it might be all our enemies, and the prime minister mentioned this too, all our enemies outside in the West ganging up on us. That's, that's the Kremlin message. And that's Putin behind the scenes pulling the strings saying that.
I think um, one of the key questions here is don't um, underestimate President Putin's ability to turn this to his advantage. Is that the direction you think they take then? We see a, a reinforcing of that message that perhaps it was um, Western interference that helped fuel this and now it's been suppressed. He'll try anyway to, to, to use this to his advantage. But the, the reality is, and this is a reality that he'll understand, that the counter-war narrative that he let fester in the public domain because he allowed Prigozhin to continue and worse, allowed this insurrection to get onto the streets and, and, and have instability for Russians in a way that they don't expect their leader, President Putin, to do because they expect him, expect him to be a tough guy and expect him to keep his inner circle in line, particularly people like Prigozhin in line. So uh, I... I, you know, for Putin at the moment, he knows that he's weakened by this. So, yes, he'll need to turn everything to his advantage. But I, I don't think he's going to be able to walk away from this. As the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said, there are cracks. How long are they take to, to run their course and where they end up isn't clear. But, but for P Putin knows this too. The other... Uh, reality that one can't escape is that, according to my conversation with General Hurtling earlier, 25 to 40,000 arguably rogue Wagner troops now that have to be um, incorporated into the, into the Russian army. No simple feat. No one really knows where the loyalty of those troops lie or who's in charge of them. Yeah, I think gaining their loyalty is going to be uh, something that the... the something that the military can do, that the, that the system in Russia can do. Uh, Prigozhin was their protector. And if he's out of the country and they're not with him, and I don't see Russia allowing them to join him in, in, in Belarus, um, if, if, if they are left to their own devices with no one to protect them, um, they're going to have to do what the next tough guy up the line tells them to do. If the next tough guy up the line is the defense ministry or the, the intelligence services knocking on their door saying, sign that paper, sign yourself up to the military or, or stand down and go home and be silent or face charges. I mean, those are the kind of levers that, that the government uses on a day-to-day -day basis with Russian citizens, which is all they're going to be now. Um, and they're going to be open to the vagaries of, of, uh, of pressure, of arm twisting and of what a dictatorship does to get what it wants. Um, would they be an effective fighting force in the front line? That's another story, and it's a very important story for Russia. Will they be, able, will they be trusted if they're put in, the, in there with their comrades in arms, the regular Russian troops that they're fighting side by side with? That, that's an open question. Would they even be committed to the fight if they were in the fight? That's an open question. But about controlling them, I think they can be controlled. Yeah, the king is dead, long live the king. But to your question about the ability to um, ultimately control them, doesn't sound like a, a convincing fighting force to me. Nick Robertson, thank you. CNN's international diplomatic editor there. OK, we're also getting details about President Joe Biden's reaction to the insurrection in Russia. The U.S. president spoke with the leaders of Germany, France, Ukraine and the United Kingdom in the hours following the events. According to people familiar with his message, it was to keep the temperature low and let events in Russia play out. President Biden stressed the importance of deflecting any Russian attempt to accuse the West of interference. Kevin Liptak joins us now, Kevin, and that's the key. 
Yeah, and it really is. And I think that is best illustrated in what we've been hearing from the Russian foreign minister this morning. He told Russia today that this was a Western intelligence plot. And that is the very reason that when President Biden got on the phone over the weekend with his counterparts, his message was really to keep the temperature down and ensure that Russia does not have some kind of pretext to claim that this was a Western plot or a NATO plot. And in that interview, I think it was interesting, Lavrov talked about this conversation conversation that he had with the American ambassador in Moscow, Lynn Tracy, and she reiterated this message that this was a Russian uh, affair and that the U.S. wasn't getting involved. And I think that was an important uh, directive from the White House, from Washington, uh, to ensure that this doesn't become something that Putin is able to claim was orchestrated by the West, which is a playbook uh, that he has used over and over again. And so I think this morning, as President Biden is waking up here at the White House, there are so many questions that remain uh, hanging over this incident. Uh, uh, incident. And, and I think that when you talk to American officials, really overriding message is that they don't think that this is over. And certainly you heard that from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, over the weekend when he did that round of interviews on Sunday shows. Really, the view among American officials is that the Wagner chief, Prigozhin has not gone away. He is not going to go to Belarus and start selling hot dogs again. They do believe that this is an ongoing situation. They don't necessarily know how it's going to end. They did have intelligence leading up to this event that he was making preparations to take these steps. They had been monitoring this power struggle between the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Wagner Group uh, dating back months. And so certainly they do have some insight into what is happening there. Uh, but I do think that there are a lot of open questions uh, that the National Security Council and that American intelligence officials are still trying to work through today uh, so they can have a better handle on what is happening going forward, Julia. Yes, the man formerly known as Putin's chef could still be cooking up some trouble. I think that's the uh, underlying yes. <laughs> message. Kevin, great to have you. Thank you, Kevin Liptak there. Okay, so to come. One of Moscow's allies weighing in on the Wagner revolt. More from Hong Kong after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. Russia shoring up support from one of its closest allies. Russia's deputy foreign minister met with his Chinese counterpart on a trip to Beijing Sunday. Russian officials say the two spoke about the political upheaval after the short-lived insurrection, with China affirming the need to strengthen Russia's, quote, unity and prosperity. Anna Corrin has more. A day after the abrupt end to the insurrection threatening Vladimir Putin's grip on power, Russia's greatest ally, China, broke its silence, issuing support for the Kremlin. After closely watching the gravest challenge to Putin's 23-year rule unfold over the weekend, the Chinese Foreign Ministry issued a strong statement online late Sunday evening, which read, This is Russia's internal affair. 
As Russia's friendly neighbour and comprehensive strategic partner of coordination for the new era, China supports Russia in maintaining national stability and achieving development and prosperity. It followed a visit to Beijing by Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenko, who met with China's Foreign Minister Qin Gang, among other Chinese officials yesterday, where the two exchanged views on Sino-Russian relations and international and regional issues of common concern. A photo showed the pair smiling, walking side by side. Russia claims this was part of scheduled consultations. The Chinese, however, did not announce the meeting beforehand. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have developed a close personal rapport in recent years over their shared ambition to challenge the US-led global order. In February of last year, the two leaders declared a friendship with no limits shortly before Putin launched his war on Ukraine. China has refused to condemn the invasion and has provided much-needed diplomatic and economic support for Russia. It's also portrayed itself as a peace broker between Russia and Ukraine. But some analysts believe China will be closely monitoring the fallout of this aborted mutiny. Wen Sung, a political scientist with the Australian National University, says the Wagner insurrection contradicts the narrative of Putin as a strong leader who enjoys full support of his people and is here for the long haul as China's global partner of choice. If Putin's rule is unstable, then supporting him is bad business. On China's Twitter-like platform Weibo, the Wagner insurrection was a top-trending topic over the weekend. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Welcome back to First Move with a take a look at what we're seeing across global markets. Investors clearly now grappling with fresh geopolitical uncertainties after this weekend's dramatic events in Russia. After a cautious pre-market, the firmer session to start the week, at least for now, all this after a losing week, in fact, for the major averages in the past week. The Nasdaq now posting its first weekly loss in some two months. In the currency markets, the Russian ruble fell to its lowest level in 15 months against the US dollar earlier. It's now recovered much of those losses. But as you can see, still under a bit of pressure this hour. Volatility too in the energy markets. And this is where we really need to focus. Oil prices rising more than 1% earlier on Russian uncertainties. It's since pulled back from those levels, but remains higher at this hour. Natural gas, wheat prices also on the rise as investors assess the demand outlook. Anna Stewart joins us now with all the details. Anna, good to have you with us. We saw immediate concern in the oil and gas market for all the efforts at European diversification. It's still one global market. And if you supply or see supplies from Russia reduced, it's going to have an impact. If ever we needed a reminder of just how yeah. big a role Russia continues to play in terms mm. of global commodities, this was it, a snapshot of what political instability within Russia could mean for particularly energy markets. And we can show you where oil prices are now. They've actually fallen back down there, slightly elevated, not as much as natural gas. You know, Russia still produces 10% of the world's global oil demand. It is the second biggest oil exporter. Yes, there are price caps in place to try and reduce how much money it can make, but it is back to uh, exporting as much oil as it did pre-invasion of Ukraine. You can also see those price moves in terms of the natural gas. And then look at those wheat prices still actually elevated this morning. What was so interesting actually was the Rostov region plays a huge role in terms of Russian wheat. It's one of the biggest wheat producing region and Russia is the biggest wheat exporter 
in the world. That region also has a very key port. And so when you see any kind of political instability in Russia, and particularly in certain regions, you're going to see an impact in terms of prices. Now, this insurrection was short-lived. It was over before markets opened on Monday. But it certainly gives you an idea of what we could see and what I think investors will be watching out for, because any kind of cracks in the political leadership in the Kremlin will have huge ramifications for commodities and for global economy, for inflation all around the world and for how much we are all paying at the till. Julia? Connecting the economic dots there, the first thing I thought about actually was that Black Sea grain deal. We've still not seen that extended, so it's no surprise to me that um, wheat prices remain high if this actually lessens the chances that that gets continued. Um, Anna, great to have you with us, and a cameo there from Nick Robertson behind you. Uh, Thank you for joining us there from London. And that's it from the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Stay with CNN now for more coverage of the revolt in Russia this weekend. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.